But we're close to the end. We are now in Revelation 21, so you can open up your Bibles there. As we consider tonight New Jerusalem as it unfolds before us, and this is awesome. Just awesome. Let's pick up in verse 5. We'll kind of cross over where we ended on Sunday. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is Jesus talking. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the O. Literally, you might want to jot that down. It's not the word Omega. It's the letter Omega there in the text. I am the Alpha and the letter Omega. That is it. I'm the finish. I'm the end. I'm the beginning and the end, he says. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And now Jesus repeats what we already saw in Revelation chapter 20. You might remember last week I told you the tough stuff was over and we're moving on into the good stuff. Well, there's still a little more tough stuff. You could say, well, Rick, you lied to us, and it says all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with... Okay, I didn't mean to mislead. If I did, I apologize. (laughs) There are some tough things here. But it's important for us to recognize, and I pointed out to you that Jesus is saying this to John, even after John has written about these things in chapter 20. So this is now not only expressed, but it is now confirmed. And in this confirmation, Isaiah, he, he said, Isaiah thirty three fourteen, sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And that is why those without God who rebel against God... It's why they are so often oppositional to God. Or even to polite conversation about Jesus or the Bible or Christianity. That is, sinners are terrified. And I say that not to be judgmental. I say that to give those of you who are followers of Jesus compassion. And when you talk to someone who is adamantly opposed to hearing about Jesus, it's because they're frightened. They might not even be able to articulate that. But there's something in the Spirit that knows that there is eternity out there. And to know in your heart of hearts, deep down, that there is eternity, but to not know what that means for you, is a terrifying proposition. Where will I go? What will I be? What will become of me? And then that, even the hint or notion of an eternal burning... The nagging sense of eternal insecurity, it just terrifies the soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11, we've looked at this verse many times. He has set eternity in their heart. And that is across the board. It is part of the human condition. We know that we know there's something to this. It takes us beyond our last breath in this life. There is an eternity out there. And so again, all people deep down just know 
But if you know there's an eternity and you don't know what that means, or you know that it, there's an eternity and you know some people have read a book that indicates if you don't trust Jesus, that eternity is going to be bad. Well, all sinners in Zion are terrified and trembling has seized the godless. Now, we talked about the eternality of the second death last week. I don't want to spend any more time on that right now, except to add just one thought of explanation. So we looked at why is hell eternal and must the lake of fire be eternal? And the scriptures are clear that it is. But you might add this to the conversation. Both heaven and the lake of fire are eternal because we are. We're eternal beings. God created us to be eternal. Mortal, yes, but once we die of our mortality, there is an immortal life that follows. We're created that way. We're made that way. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Now, that was a verse that I used to think was kind of comical when I was younger. Even younger in my 20s as a youth pastor, because that's one that you can really graphically portray for students as you're teaching it. You know, if your hand or foot offends you, cut it off. I mean, if we really followed that prescription, we would all be maimed. We would all be blind. We would all be deaf. We would all be doing these things. Jesus is making a point. It's better for you, he says, to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. The life that he's talking about entering is eternal life. It would be better for you to enter eternal life lame than to be cast into the eternal fire. That gives me great comfort, especially when I'm being lame. I can enter eternal life lame. I am an imperfect person who He has sanctified and He has saved. But Jesus is talking about eternal life because we were made to be eternal. And that's why the Gospel is the most crucial message that has ever been given to mankind. There is nothing more important that you or I can share with anybody but the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The value of the Gospel is eternal. It's the only message that is eternal. Anything else you can tell anyone else has a temporary ring to it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal because by embracing it, that is, Jesus came, He loved, He died, He rose from the dead, and He did it for you. And if you'll trust in Him, you're saved. The gospel is the message of our eternal salvation. And God's desire, get this, is for all people to have eternal life in close-knit fellowship with Him around the table. Supper time. Family. How big was the upper room that Jesus shared with the apostles on that Passover, that last Passover? Not big. Not large. I mean, our staff room upstairs is probably about the size. Twelve guys, thirteen, huddled around the table together in close-knit union. God's offer of eternal kinship, fellowship, relationship is what this is all about. And it's the source and supply of, of peace in this world. My relationship with God is what brings my peace. On my worst day, my best peace always comes straight from Jesus. It comes from fellowship with Him. This is a tumultuous world. And into it, God says, I have peace for you. 
And that peace is eternal. This is an insecure world. And God says, into that insecurity, I will offer you security. The confidence of your eternal life and the confidence of knowing I am with you right now. Now, we're going to come back to verses 5 through 8 on Sunday and dig into them a little more. But keep in mind tonight that this is all about closeness. That as big as it's going to get, and it will get big... God desires to be intimately close to you. God has His eye on you. Tonight I want to head home. Home to New Jerusalem. There's a banner that used to fly out on apartments in Southern California. I don't know if they still do it, but it it was a good sales trick. But if you were sitting in traffic, as I used to do when we lived down there, sitting in horrible traffic, and you knew to go 10 miles was going to take you 45 minutes, and you're driving along, and back when Cheryl and I were living in our first apartment up in Fullerton, I remember driving up that freeway and seeing apartments on the sides of the freeway, and and suddenly one day a big banner showed up. And the banner read, if you lived here, you'd be home now. I almost moved. I mean, I was that close. If you lived here, you would be home now. Well, let's live there tonight. Let's live in New Jerusalem. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, first of all, hang on a second. Whoa, one of the seven angels that poured out wrath? That's bizarre. Wouldn't you think God would provide a new, fresh angel? (laughs) This guy's been working pretty hard, right? He's poured out wrath on the earth. John looks up. He looks over and says, Hey, want to see the bride? Angel of wrath showing me the bride? How does that work? It's as if the angel says, Hey, hey, Johnny, that wrath... It's not for you. Let me now show you what is for you. Verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. New Jerusalem. Here it comes. Right down the aisle of the atmosphere, like a bride adorned, ready. But as we ask the question on Sunday, let's continue it. Why does he say, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then show him a city? You want to see the bride? I'll show you. And here's New Jerusalem. And because of that, many commentators have looked at it and said, oh, well, New Jerusalem, that's the bride. It's not the church after all. It's New Jerusalem. Why would the angel do this? I want to show you the bride. Here she is. And here comes the city. And the answer is very simple, because that's where the bride is. That's where the bride is. It would be as if I say, hey, I want to introduce you to my wife. Come on over. Come on to my house. That's, that's where she is. Well, she's there right now, but, but later tonight, <laughs> she'll be home. Come to my house and I will show you the bride. If I want to introduce you, that's, that's what I do. And so we have this picture. We see Yerushalayim, Ma'ala, Jerusalem above, as we talked about Sunday, coming down. Beautiful as a bride, and that's the residency of the bride. And I'll give you more reasons to understand and believe that as we go through the chapter tonight. But here is the home of the bride. 
And here it comes down, but but not all the way. What do you mean? It doesn't land on the earth. The language indicates that it comes down and hovers between the new earth and the new heaven. The new heaven would include all of the new universe that God will create. What's it going to be like? I don't know. The new earth, he doesn't even take time to describe because we are so focused in Revelation 21 and 22 on new Jerusalem. That's your home. That's my home. For eternity after the millennial kingdom. After the thousand years, Cheryl looked at me last night and she said, can I tell him how old you are? Is that granted? I'm 53 years old, she says. And then she goes, and the kingdom is a thousand years. (laughs) I went, yes. Yeah. After the thousand years, into eternity, our home, that's New Jerusalem. And so New Jerusalem is the entire focus, but it hovers, it hangs there, suspended between the new heavens and the new earth, there in the space between. Note that the angel has to take John away, it says, to a high, a great and high mountain. It's got to get up on the top of a mountain just to see this. Because this is not something that's just right there planted on the land. This is up above. Interesting, another angel, a fallen one, took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Laid it all out before him. And Jesus, standing there beside the devil, he looked down. And the devil showed him all that man was doing. And the devil offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, the fast track to glory. Bow down to me right here on this mountain and all that you see, I'll give it to you. And it was his to give. He was in charge of the kingdoms at that point. He's the God of this world. And of course, you know the story that Jesus denied. He said, get behind me, Satan. It's written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But here, by contrast, John, and I don't know if John's thinking about that, the temptation of Christ and and, and that trip up to the high mountain that that fallen angel Satan had taken Jesus. I don't know if that was on his mind. But here, John is taken to a a high mountain and rather than looking down at the kingdoms of the world, he looks up and he sees not what man is doing, but he sees what God is doing. New Jerusalem. And the angel shows him this capital city coming down. It's not the fast track to glory, it's the free gift of grace that is now given from God. You know, Satan's trying to make a deal. Let's make a deal. God's saying, I have a gift. And it comes down from heaven. And by the way, side note, the devil will always tempt with the easiest route, with the immediate, and with the temporary stuff of the world. The devil will always try to get you up on a place where you can look down. Hey, look at this. Look at what I've got before you. Look at the opportunities for you to do things right here on the planet. Focus on that. That's always what Satan's doing. If you do this now, you'll get immediate results. I can expedite you. Just look down. The Lord is always saying, hey, look up. I'm bringing something to you. I'm offering something to you that is long-term and eternal. God is always looking at the big picture and looking at forever. And that's what He invites us to do. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If you have been raised up with Christ, 
Keep seeking the things above. Keep looking up. Don't be looking down. Christ is the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And John said in 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away and its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Look up. Focus upward. What we're doing in Revelation 21 and 22, please don't let this be the last time you read this. And don't let the conclusion of our Revelation study be the last time you crack the book of Revelation until the next time we come around and study it again. Be heavenly minded is what I'm saying. Be heavenly minded. Because it is by looking up that we have all the hope we need to deal with this world down here. It's by looking up that we have the confidence to walk in the name of Jesus. It's by looking up that we're looking out at eternity rather than at right here, right now. Because right here, right now doesn't get you anywhere. Keep looking up. So this sky-high, capital, gateway city between new earth and, and new heaven... It comes down shining with literally, verse 11 tells us, the glory of God. One more thing about this. It has the glory of God and that is the source of the beauty of New Jerusalem as we will see. New Jerusalem without the glory of God would not shine like we're going to see it shine. Both in the study and in the future. It is the source. God's glory is the source of the beauty. And by the way, God's glory is the source of your attraction too. Praise God, it's not us. I am so thankful that I am not the source of my attraction. Of my beauty. It's the glory of God. And if there's anything beautiful in you, in me, it's His glory in us. Now, check out this glory. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's pure grace that makes us attractive in the Lord. And Paul says, And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Here it is. Verse 11, continuing, Her brilliance, that is New Jerusalem, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, a jasper stone today is usually reddish brown, and it's opaque. It's not clear, it's not see-through. So this is a different kind of stone here. And yeah, the word jasper is used, but there may have been, uh, over the years, uh, some of these stones we look at tonight may have shifted a little bit in their meaning, uh, at least from what John intended, what he was saying, translating the ideas from the ancient Hebrew into the Greek and then into English. Sometimes these things aren't exactly... I mean, the word is exact, but sometimes like this jasper, it's not jasper as we would see it today. This is crystal clear. So it's like a diamond. It's like an absolutely beautiful diamond speaking of clarity and color and brilliance. And we've seen this jasper stone before. We've seen it represented in the revelation of Jesus. That is Revelation chapter 4 verse 3. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. That is like a diamond and then like the red, blood red sardius stone. John sees Jesus on the throne. Jasper. 
this reflective, crystal clear, beautiful stone. And he describes this, this brilliance of New Jerusalem in this way. By the way, down in verse 18, we're going to see that the city itself is made of gold. And the gold is so pure that it's transparent. You can't get more pure than the gold that New Jerusalem will be made of. And so you've got the city made of gold, and then you've got this diamond that's set in the gold. What does that look like? That's a wedding ring. That's a wedding ring. It's a picture of the bride. So verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and the gates... At the gates were twelve angels, and names were written on them, the gates, not the angels, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and there were three gates on the north, and there were three gates on the south, and there were three gates on the west. And these names, again, each one of these three gates on all four walls of New Jerusalem now have a name on them. Beautiful names, the names of the twelve tribes. Now, right now, today, the old city of Jerusalem has eight gates. Seven that are open, one that's closed. The seven that are open, the Jaffa Gate, it's a gate we often go through. It's the closest one to the hotel we stay at in in Jerusalem, the Jaffa Gate. And then there's the Flowers Gate, or, or sometimes called Herod's Gate. There's the Damascus Gate, the New Gate which is the most recent one that was added to the wall in 1889 so Christians could get into the Christian quarter. That's nice. And then the Zion Gate. Zion Gate's interesting. That's one we always stand out in front of for a bit and look at because it's the only gate that is literally riddled with bullet holes. That's the gate that the Israeli paratroopers stormed when they retook Jerusalem in June of 1967. And it's fascinating to see that. I mean, no repairs have been made. There's just bullet holes everywhere. The Zion Gate. Interesting because it was when they retook Zion. The devil was fighting hard against that. Then the sixth gate is the Dung Gate. That's a favorite. (laughs) The Dung Gate. Well, why would they name something like that? Well, that's the gate that leads out to the Hinnom Valley. The Valley of Gehenna. The Valley of Burning. And that was the Valley of Refuse and garbage that was dumped there and would be burned there. And literally refuse that came out of the temple, like the refuse of body parts, animal parts, you know, residual in terms of blood and fat and all that stuff that, that wouldn't be offered up. That would be taken out the, the dung gate and then burned out in the Valley of Hinnom. And then there's the Lion's Gate. It has two huge lions standing on either side of it today. And finally, the gate that's closed, the mercy gate or the golden gate. That's the one that you see in the pictures. That's the one on the eastern wall of the city. That's the one on the eastern wall of the Temple Mount itself, facing toward the Mount of Olives. If you're on the Mount of Olives looking across, that's the one you see. And it's the only gate that is completely sealed up with a Muslim cemetery in front of it because that's the gate that Jesus will enter. Actually, I think it's the gate that's right beneath it, underground. But that's a, that's a whole different teaching for another time. But Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 5, talks about Messiah, the glory of God, coming back down and through the eastern gate, the golden gate of the temple. But that's old Jerusalem. What about new Jerusalem? Twelve gates, 
three on all four of the walls surrounding this amazing city, and they are named for the twelve tribes of Israel. So you're going to have Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. You're going to have Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these will be the names of the gates. Get this, stay focused on this, of New Jerusalem. This is not Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. This is not the millennial Jerusalem on planet Earth, Earth as we know it today, with that raised-up, glorious, amazing Temple Mount and, and Jerusalem in the kingdom age of a thousand years. This is beyond that. This is heading right on into eternity that the names of the twelve boys, sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, my friends, will be remembered for eternity. Every time someone comes in or out of New Jerusalem, they're going to look up and see one of those 12 names. They will enter through one of those 12 names. By the way, if you plot this out, east, north, south, west, these compass points are the same layout as the camp of Israel around the tabernacle in Numbers 1 and 2. God is a God of order, and He has maintained these things, so we go into into the future of eternity, and there around New Jerusalem, you could call it the New Tabernacle, because around it are all the names in the exact same placement that they were in the wilderness. Why? Why the names of the twelve tribes and the twelve gates of New Jerusalem? Because, and listen to me on this, to get to God, you have to go through Israel. That's something that the church has somewhat forgotten. At least some branches of the church have have forgotten this. To get to God, you have to go through Israel. Now, someone might protest that and say, no, 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 you have to go through Jesus. Exactly. And Jesus was a Jew. By going through Jesus, you're going through Israel. And if you want to know Jesus better, I suggest you get to know Israel better. I'm really excited that we're about to launch back to Genesis so we can start getting to know Israel again. And start revisiting and, and thinking through again why this is all so important. But you have to go through Israel. Romans 9 verse 4 says to Israel belongs the adoption as sons. Hey, wait, I'm adopted. But it started with Israel. And the glory. Hey, we get to experience the glory, but Israel saw it first. And the covenants. God is faithful to you and to me, but He made covenants of promise that He will follow through with with Israel. And the giving of the law. The law was our tutor, right? That brought us to Christ. And the temple's service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. And that's the point. The Christ came through Israel. So if you want to get to God, you've got to go through the Christ who came through Israel, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus, our Jewish Savior. To get to God, you've got to go through Israel. And we will, and that's part of the reason I think the gates are so named. But again, in the eternal New Jerusalem, whichever gate you enter, whichever way people come in, they will always be reminded that it was through Israel that Yeshua, Hamashiach, was born. That Yeshua came, saving us out of the previous world. And on into eternity. Verse 14. 
And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you've got the twelve sons of Israel on one hand representing Israel. Now you've got the twelve apostles representing the church. You're going to see their names on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, and Thaddeus. Thaddeus is also known as Judas, not Iscariot. Which is a great name. Hey, nice to meet you. Judas, not Iscariot. You know when he put that on a business card? Judas, not Iscariot. Just to be clear. And you know, tragically, 12 foundation stones, 12 apostles' names, and Judas will not be among them. He won't be named. He's out. Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, as Jesus called him, the son of waste, need not apply. But the rest will all be there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 tells us, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and are of God's, here's the word, listen, household, of God's household. Earlier during communion, I was talking about intimacy, kinship, fellowship, relationship, right? God's household. You are, think about that. You are of God's household. Oh, I love to say, I'm of God's kingdom, yes. I'm of God's creation, yes. I'm involved in God's splendiferous activity, yes. I'm also of God's household. I I, I live in God's house. And you are of God's household. But he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So 12 stones, 11 names. Do we have a stone without a name? Who's the 12th man? It's not going to be Russell Wilson. He's on the team anyway, so he wouldn't be the 12th man. Who's the 12th man? Who's the 12th apostle whose name is on the 12th foundation stone? And of course, there are debates about that. I already heard someone say Paul. Well, someone might say, hey, what about Matthias? Acts chapter 1, they cast lots and Matthias was named. And I'm sure for a season, perhaps for the rest of his life, when the apostles met, he was there. When the apostles had their apostolic conference, he went. (laughs) Matthias. And of course, in Acts chapter 9, Paul does come along. Paul is called by Jesus. Paul claimed himself to be the last apostle. So which is it? Is it Paul? Is it Matthias? I I believe, I would agree, it's Paul. And I'll tell you why I think that. Twelfth name on these New Jerusalem foundation stones? Paul, because first of all, Peter wasn't told to choose a replacement. The Lord did not say, by the way, Peter, while you're waiting, I got a little job for you. Peter just did it. Peter's always just doing stuff, right? What did Jesus tell Peter and the apostles to do before he ascended? Anyone remember? He told them to wait. Just wait. I can almost hear Jesus doing it. Okay, guys, I want you to wait, Peter. Just wait. (laughs) 
Acts chapter 1, verse 4, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, you heard of from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Which they would need to do the ministry of the Spirit of God. They would need the Spirit of God. So Jesus says, wait for it. And man, I can just see the stress and the strain as hours turned into days, turned into two days, turned into three. How long did they have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come? Ten days. So what was it, day three, that Peter stood up and said, okay, we got to do something here. This waiting is driving me nuts. Have you ever asked God something and waited five or six days and wondered, why are you not answering me, Lord? I like to tell people when they, when they share that with me, I've been praying and praying and praying about this and I'm not getting an answer. I love to remind them of Moses. Well, see, Moses was in Midian as a shepherd for 40 years before God called him, so why don't you give yourself a little time? <laughs> David waited from his anointing. Samuel comes and pulls him off of the shepherd's fields and, and anoints him there in front of his brothers and his fathers. David waits 10 years, 10 years before he becomes king in Israel. Wait for it. Just Just wait. Man, when they rolled the dice on Matthias, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them in power yet. This was pre-baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we don't hear from Matthias after Acts chapter 1. He's named, they throw cast lots, he's the guy, and you never hear of him again. No offense to Matthias, I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> and he probably did great ministry. But we don't hear about him. He is never again named in the New Testament. We do hear about Paul. And we hear from Paul. In fact, half of the book of Acts and 13 letters later, we know a lot about Paul. We know what he was into, what he was up to. And furthermore, apostles don't choose apostles. And I think that's important today. People don't choose men of God, women of God. God chooses them. Jesus chose Paul. And Paul confesses this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What Paul literally says there is, as if I were stillborn. As to one who should not have had any chance at life based on where I was at when he called, and yet he called me. He appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles, he says, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God with me. And that's a a final thing I want to note on this, is that the apostolic calling was never a point of pride, but a point of humble servitude. That to be called an apostle was to be called to the lowest rung of the ladder, not the highest. To be called a bondservant of Jesus Christ is always about climbing down the ladder, not up. It's all about getting down below people to support them, not asking others to support you. It's not the high and mighty position above. It is the position taken below. That is our calling. For the follower of Jesus Christ, it's never about names and titles. There's only one name and one title, Jesus Christ. That's it. 
He's the one we're concerned with. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And that's what John said. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, all of us, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his glorious apostle John. <laughs> to his bondservant, John. Because that's what we become when we follow after Jesus, and gladly so. By the way, I have to wonder this. He shows John the foundation stones and John realizes the names of the apostles are on the stones and as he's looking, does he see his name? John. I I can't imagine that he would have missed it. If my name was on one of the foundation stones, I would have written it. And you know, it would, what it would have said here is on the 12 foundation stones, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb with Rick in all caps. John saw his name. What do you think that did for John? How encouraging in the position. Remember, he's on Patmos. He's in exile. He's got crispy brown skin from having been boiled alive once. He doesn't have a real promising future at this point. And he sees his name on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem. Which is to say, you'll be here, Johnny. You're going to be right here. How awesome, how amazing. And by the way, your name is written down too. If you have put your trust in Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It is there, it is inscribed. It is as sure as John's name on a foundation stone. Your name is written down. Not by your greatness or anything you have done or will do, but by His Not by your sacrifice, anything you have given up or will, but by His. Not by your goodness, but by Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. And it's more than your name in the book. By the way, your name is in the book. But Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 4, coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the apostles are foundation stones built on the foundation which is Jesus Himself. And we are like living stones being built into and prepared for New Jerusalem. Verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city. And this measuring rod would be like a reed, about a 10 foot long reed used for for measurements. That's how they measured things in the first century. But this one's made of gold and is to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city, verse 16, is laid out as a square. Now watch this. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Watch this. Its length and width and height are equal. What does that mean? 1,500 miles in width, 1,500 miles in length. 1,500 miles in height. Let me see if I can give you a picture of this to understand. He says, by the way, note this in verse 17, he measured the wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic, (laughs) which is good to know. 
It means your tape measure will be good in heaven, uh, as it is here, I guess. You know? (laughs) Angelic measurements are the same here. And John points this out. I want to point out that as we read these dimensions and try to grasp what we're looking at here, New Jerusalem will be a completely new dimension itself. So we say, oh, there's going to be a new earth, so it's going to look like... No, it's going to be a new earth. Don't think of this earth. The question came up, so the new heavens, will there be like stars and planets? No, Uh, maybe. But don't think old heaven. It's going to be a new heaven. God is doing an entirely new thing here. And it's going to blow our minds. This new Jerusalem is a cube. Okay? Because it's length and its width and its height are all the same. Some have said it could be a pyramid because that would work as well. Length, width, and height could also be a pyramid. But I think it's a cube. And the reason I think it's a cube is when you look at these measurements and you think of New Jerusalem, you have to realize that it's the same shape as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It's a lot bigger, but the Holy of Holies is a perfect square. And so New Jerusalem, which is now going to be the new Holy of Holies in eternity. How do you know, Rick? Because God dwells there, but I'm getting ahead of myself. 1,500 miles cubed. 12 levels. 60 stories. Think from Canada to Mexico. Roughly 1,500 miles. From the Pacific Ocean to Duluth, Minnesota, 1,500 miles. And then go straight up into the atmosphere, 1,500 miles, and that's the size of New Jerusalem. This place is going to be massive. The city itself will have a mass of 3.375 billion square miles. It's an overall area that is larger than the moon. This is a city. Remember, this is just the city of New Jerusalem. Not even talking about the size of New Earth or or the expanse of, of the New Heaven. We're just talking about New Jerusalem here. It's bigger than the moon. And I can imagine the first, when, when John saw it, did he think to himself, that's no moon, it's a space, I mean, that's New Jerusalem. <laughs> this thing is huge. Thank you, Obi-Wan. <laughs> Henry Morris, in his book, The Revelation Record, calculated, actually sat down and did this, I don't know why someone would take the time, but he calculated out the number of people perhaps saved across all history. He calculated that from the beginning to the end, and including the Millennial Kingdom, about 100 billion people will have lived. And then he added up the numbers and figured, probably generously, although I hate to say it this way, but assuming out of that 100 billion that 20 billion come to faith in Jesus Christ. Which is heartbreaking to me. But when you look at the numbers, think about all the people across history who have rejected Jesus, who are not part of that. And all the people who have chosen other paths or other directions, who have chosen religion over relationship. And, and he says it's probably generous to assume 20 billion people. If 20 billion people were saved across history, including coming out of the Millennial Kingdom, New Jerusalem in its size and expanse would provide a cubicle block of 75 acres a person. 
How would you like that? <laughs> you got your 75 acres, which means you don't have to mess with your stupid neighbor making all kinds of noise next door. Walk around the house in their underwear with the windows open. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> 75 acres. Talk about the ultimate city planner. God is preparing for a huge population. And plenty of room. In fact, you know what this means for those who trust Him? There's plenty of room for you. He's making room. He's preparing the house and building. We were talking about this earlier that uh, when we built our house, we built a bigger house than I then Cheryl and I really wanted to. And I know that sounds weird. You'd think, oh, hey, you can do it. Build a bigger house. Well, we didn't really want to. We had in mind a much smaller house, one about the size of the previous house that we lived in over in Anacortes. And when we built our house, we had two plans. One was the size of our previous one, and the other one was a lot bigger. And we, as we prayed about it, kept coming back to this one. And, and we looked at each other and said, I don't want that big a house. But that's what, and we didn't know. We didn't know that we were going to double the size of children in our house overnight. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know in our life today, I'm talking about this week, that we would need the space. God knew. God always knows. And He always provides the room that's needed. And in New Jerusalem, it's huge. Remember Jesus said in John 14 too, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And I want you to put this in your thinking. When Jesus said that, I believe He was talking about a place prepared for the church that is caught up and raptured. And yet, you know what? Jesus already has the plans for the millennial kingdom laid out. And you know what? After the thousand years, God already has the entire plans for New Jerusalem. He's already prepared. He's ready for you. That's big. Verse 17. He measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which again are also angelic. Now, that's interesting. 72 yards. 144 cubits is is what the language indicates. So this wall... There's a wall around New Jerusalem that'll be about 200, maybe about 216 feet high based on these measurements around the rim of New Jerusalem. Verse 18 says the material of the wall was jasper, that clear, crystal clear diamond. And the city, the city was pure gold like clear glass. Transparent gold. Compared to, it might sound like a big wall. I mean, if you went out, if you went home tonight and started building a 216 foot wall between your house and your neighbor's house, that might tell them something. <laughs> First of all, dude, close the windows. <laughs> but no, I mean, a huge wall. This is not a big wall. 216 feet high is not big compared to 1,500 miles. You put this wall on New Jerusalem and it's a dinky little picket fence. It's not huge by any measure. And the wall is not made of iron or stone or concrete. It's made of jasper, set in gold. It's a big cubicle wedding ring in the sky. And the point is, yes, there's a wall around New Jerusalem, but the wall is not for security. It's for beauty. It's just beautiful. Think of 
Think of a dream home with a little white picket fence, little flowers intertwined throughout the fence. You know, that's not going to keep the bad guys out. Oh no, it's a picket fence. Run. No, it, it's beautiful. It's just an indication that this is, this is my home. So we have this beautiful jasper wall around the transparent gold of New Jerusalem. Verse 19 says the foundation stones. Oh, this is where it gets amazing of the, as if it weren't already, of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. In fact, the first foundation stone was itself jasper. And the second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. (laughs) That is one big oyster. (laughs) And the street itself of the city was pure gold, again like transparent glass. This is overwhelming to picture the size, the sheer size of it. Massive, the transparent gold, the luminescence and the crystal clear jasper wall around. But then... Then the foundation stones, sapphire, dark blue, and chalcedony, which is a multicolored agate stone, and emerald, which is sparkling green. Sardonyx is brown and white. And sardius is that blood red stone. Chrysolite is golden yellow. Beryl is green. Topaz is greenish yellow. Chrysoprase is apple green. Jacinth is a bluish color, and then amethyst is purple. Can you imagine the gorgeous beauty just of the foundation stones around this amazing city? And I like what F.F. Bruce, the commentator, said. He said, John ransacks the resources of language and metaphor to describe the indescribable glory which the holy city reflects. He ransacks language. You can just see John going through thesaurus after thesaurus, trying to come up with words to describe what he sees. But listen, what he sees is not an allegory or a metaphor. What he sees is literal. It is actual. So Rick, you're saying that the foundation stone, the first one, was made of jasper? It was either made of jasper or that's what it looked like as John looked at it. But what I'm saying to you is it's an actual stone. And we're talking about actual walls and an actual city, a reality that is not esoteric and vague and and ethereal and ghostly, but is more real than the reality in which we live today. See, the spirit realm is more real, not less. And we're looking at something that is breathtaking. By the way, do all these stones sound at all familiar? They may be, and if you try to do a comparison, it doesn't line up precisely, but again, there may be a difference in the naming of stones by the time John's writing these down from originally, but they may be the same 12 precious stones set in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. And you can check that out and think about that. Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 through 21 gives that description, and it's possible we're talking about the same stones. But the gates here, as we read, are purest pearl. So this is where pearly gates came from. People like to say, oh yeah, it was the pearly gates in heaven. It's, it's not just the vague pearly gates in heaven. The New Jerusalem, the city of New Jerusalem will have gates of pure pearl. 
stunning. And it's another hint, by the way, of the residency of the bride of Christ. Because they're made of pearl. So they cannot have a representation of Israel because pearls come from oysters, which are unclean animals. So when the Bible talks about pearls and gives examples of pearls, when Jesus shares a parable relating to pearls, it has a Gentile element to it. It talks about, it refers to the church. Jesus said in Matthew 13.45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. And in that parable, the merchant is Jesus, who sold all he had, gave his very blood for the pearl, which is the church. It's beautiful. Now remember, and this is, this is where it just gets so cool, that, that on these pearly gates, inscribed on the pearly gates, are not the names of the twelve apostles, they're the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So gates that are representative just in their makeup of the church have the name of a tribe of Israel on them. You see this blending of Israel and the church together as one, which is something God prophesied He would do. Promised that the two would come together. Galatians 3.28, Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's this beautiful picture. When you look at New Jerusalem, it's not just a church thing. It's finally, the dividing wall, the barrier is gone. Finally, Israel and the church, the sons of Israel and the apostles, Christians and Jews, together by faith in Jesus Christ, dwelling in this magnificent holy city, where, by the way, the walls and the gates do not incarcerate or divide. They are security and peace. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'll just read it to you. Therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one. Both groups, Jew and Gentile. Israel and the church. He made both into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. What does that describe to you? It describes to me a relationship over a religion. He did away with all that so that we could come together in the name of Jesus. And He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far away. That's us. That's every one of us here tonight. We were far away. We were without a hope. And Jesus came into the world and started preaching the gospel of the kingdom which is for you. And it's for Israel. 
He came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near, for through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's the word again, God's household. It's all about God's family. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fit together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. My friends, that is not just spiritual, it is literal, because we are being built into, prepared for, New Jerusalem, in which the Spirit of God will dwell. And it's what Jesus did. This is New Jerusalem. Back in Revelation 21, verse 22, He says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So here in New Jerusalem, everything and every place is holy. It has to be. If this is the new holy of holies, this great giant cube... If this is the new holy of holies, then everything within must be holy. Which means cooking pots, pans, silverware, jeans, your latest tennis shoes, (laughs) you. Everything in New Jerusalem is holy. I was thinking back, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 20 says, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. So Jingle Bells is going to take on a completely different meaning. It says, The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. He says, Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and and boil in them. So the pot that you use for spaghetti is going to be holy. And understand that Zechariah's prophecy isn't even about New Jerusalem. It's about the Millennial Kingdom. It's about Jerusalem and Millennial Kingdom. But New Jerusalem, man, it is the Holy of Holies of eternity. Everything's holy there. Everything's perfect because it becomes the dwelling of God the Almighty and Jesus Christ the Lamb. They are the temple. In the first century, you didn't have a city without a temple. In fact, you didn't have a city without multiple temples. That's just the way it was. They were very religious. It's not a good thing. They were very religious in the Greco-Roman world, and so every city had its massive temples, and usually the real big one to Zeus or one of the gods, and then several smaller temples that you could go to. You come into New Jerusalem, there's no temple. Because everywhere you go, God is there. Everywhere you are, He is. And our worship will be eternal. I was thinking about the temple, and this is interesting. Before Jesus came, God had Israel build a temple. Why? That temple was prophetic. The temple of Solomon and later what became Herod's temple, but Zerubbabel's temple, the second one, those two temples pointed forward. They were prophetic. They were looking to one who would come. In fact, the tabernacle and then the temple, it was all prophetic. Because the Word became flesh, John 1.14, and tabernacled among us. 
Jesus comes along. And before Him, the temple was prophetic. But then after Him, He said, I am the temple. He said, John 2.19, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. So the temple used to be prophetic. Now, in this age, the temple is personal. It's you. And it's me. We are walking temples. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I remind you that is right now. You don't wait for that. You don't wait to become a temple of the Lord. When you trust Jesus, you are a temple of the Lord. He's already dwelling here. He has immediate access to worship and to pray to and to offer yourself to. Now in the millennial age, the temple is neither prophetic nor is it personal. It becomes preeminent. That is throughout the world during that thousand year reign, everyone's coming to temple. Everyone's going to go up to Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 verse 3 says, Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so in the kingdom age, the temple is preeminent. But in New Jerusalem, the temple is pervasive. It's just everywhere. Because it is God, it is the Lamb. Think about that. God and the Lamb. In other words, both both the object of our worship and the offering. Both the source and the sacrifice. God and the Lamb. How much more relational can it get than that? I really wonder. God who has called us into living, breathing, daily relationship with Him. Does it get any more personal than that He is everywhere in New Jerusalem? That He is the living, breathing temple. You are right now. He is then. It is not ritual. And it is not religious observance. And it is not ceremony anymore. That's why there's no temple. Because we humans, we think temple and we think church and we think going to church and then we start to think about the things we have to do to be ready to be at church. And then when we're at church, the church things that we have to do in the church. And we get all messed up in our heads. You know when you hop in your car and you head toward the bridge on a Sunday morning, you are not going to church. Do you know that church is in the car where two or three are gathered in His name? It's always personal with God. And I know I'm a broken record on this. For 15 years we've talked about this again and again and again. It's not religion, it's relationship. It's not religion, it's relationship. But that's what God's calling us to. Religion builds really high walls. And they're not beautiful, they're ugly. And religion puts up gates, but they're not unlocked, they're locked. Religion makes it easy. Wait, what? Oh yeah, it's easy. All you need to do for religion is have a set of rules. Give me five things that I'm supposed to do. Done. It's easy, but it is not close. I can be religious. Anyone can do that. But I'll tell you what, the more religious you are, the further from God you will get. The more relational you are, 
That is, you want to draw near to Him. You like being around His people. That's, that's where the kinship happens and the fellowship. So He gives this temple for a prophetic picture and then a personal picture and then a preeminent picture and finally an all-pervasive picture. Why? Because the temple of God was about capturing the attention of the hearts of His people. That's all it was ever for. Giving them a place to come. Well, verse 23, sorry, I kind of went off on that. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is just... Again, imagine New Jerusalem as described with all of these luminescent stones and, and, and all the jasper and the, and the transparent gold and then the Shekinah glory of God. How brilliant will all of that be? How breathtaking. John, the same apostle, same bondservant who wrote this revelation said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. You know what that means practically? It means He's not messing around with deception. It means He's telling you everything you need to know. It means He's completely honest and transparent with you about what matters to Him. There's no darkness there. It's not like us. We can hide things from each other. God doesn't hide stuff from us. Jesus said, I've made known to you everything the Father has told me. Which is why I've called you friends. There is no darkness. But if we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, openly, transparently, authentically, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship, kinship, relationship, if we walk in the light as He is in the light. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Again, like Israel in the wilderness, that, that cloud, they didn't, you know Israel didn't need the sun or the moon or the stars. They were there, but they didn't need them. They had the Shekinah glory of God. During the night, it lit up like a blazing fire. During the day, it was this massive glorious cloud above them. And whatever the weather was doing, they always could see their way. Because the Shekinah glory of God was their light in the wilderness. And now it is the light emanating out of New Jerusalem with its transparent gold and clear jasper walls and precious stones foundations all shimmering and shining the light of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It is just an overwhelming thing to even try to imagine what John's describing here. And in verse 25, in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And then they will bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. But if the saved are in New Jerusalem, who makes up the nations? Wait a minute here. Something's missing. Something's missing. All the saved are in New Jerusalem, right? We've established that. 20 billion, however many people are there, each with your 75-acre parcels, you know? We're all there. By the way, your parcel (laughs) is a cube. 
<laughs> you're, you're, there's your landmass. I'm going to plant some cherry trees over here. Maybe over here have some basketball courts. You know, over here is going to be my motorcycle track. I don't know. You, I mean, you're going to be up the whole thing. Anyway, wow. <laughs> if we're there in New Jerusalem, who are the nations? Who are the kings of the nations? It's, it's Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now. Great question, but good luck answering it. Who brings the honor of glory of nations and kings into New Jerusalem? If we reside in New Jerusalem, who's coming in and going out? And why would we ever go out? Why does there have to be a new earth beneath the new heavens? I, what is going on here? And I'm going to answer the question with a question. What makes us think that with the current heavens and earth, God is done creating? What makes you think that once we move in to new Jerusalem above the new earth and the below the new heavens in that space, what makes you think God's going to stop creating them for the rest of eternity? As one of my sisters said this morning, you know, an artist will create their whole life until they no longer have the ability to do it. You know, the arm is too frail or too weak. It can't quite grasp the paintbrush like perhaps it used to. Can't quite wield the hammer like the sculptor used to be able to. God's not wearing out. He's not getting old. The creative force and power and wonder that is in God and is characteristic of God, that, that's not going away. What I'm telling you is, going into New Jerusalem, we ain't going to be bored. We are not going to be bored. God is going to continue to be doing new things. He's he's God. He's Creator. (laughs) So Rick, are you saying He's creating people to be on... I'm I'm not saying anything beyond... I'm not trying to give you a doctrine here. I'm just trying to paint a picture. There is nothing boring about the idea of heading into eternity with Jesus and seeing what He's going to do next. Can you imagine... Lori Beth comes knocking on your door. You gotta see this. God's doing a new thing. I'd be like, yeah, that was like five minutes ago. No, it's a new thing now. Wow. And we all go off to see and worship. It's gotta be amazing. We cannot fathom what is coming with the new heaven, the new earth, and our home, New Jerusalem. And in fact, the Lord indicates this. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 18, he says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Indicating he's going to continue to create forever. He's going to do marvelous things. He says, Behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. So whoever these people are, these kings, these nations, they're going to come and go in and out of New Jerusalem. I believe we'll be able to go anywhere we want. I think that's the indication. Well, New Jerusalem will be home. I doubt we're ever going to want to leave, but you could go down to the New Earth if you want to, or up to the heavens, you know, transport back and forth, take a little trip. I think for vacation, we're all going to want to come home. But it says in verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And that is how we know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, New Jerusalem is our new home. It is the home of the Bride of Christ. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's your address. New Jerusalem. That parcel, that section, that's yours. And you're there if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. But wait, this last verse, it begs yet another question. Will there be things unclean? Or those who practice abomination and lying, at least on the new earth or or outside of New Jerusalem in this new creation of God, will there be these things? No one who practices abomination and lying, nothing unclean shall ever come into it. So does that indicate that there's some stuff outside of it that is unclean? And I believe the answer is an unequivocal no. Absolutely not. Not in the least. Because Jesus already told us the first things have passed away. These things are no more. Down in verse 3 of chapter 22 says there will no longer be any curse. Well, if there's no curse, there is no sin. So no, this is not about then. Brothers and sisters, verse 27 is about right now. What do you mean? I mean anyone who who is unclean, who practices abomination and lying, will not go to New Jerusalem. And what's just happened here is we have ended where we began. Just like the angel. And the contrast here could not be more clear. The angel who on the one hand poured out the bowl of wrath and on the other hand shows John the bride, New Jerusalem... In the same way, we have Jesus beginning this with a statement of very clear warning about the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part's going to be in the lake of fire. That's where we start. But then we go to New Jerusalem and it's glorious and it's epic and it's beautiful. And after showing us this, he says, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will enter. And if you practice lying or abominations or uncleanness, You will not enter. You will not go in. Started with the reality, the dark reality of the continually burning lake of fire, which is itself, now stay with me, it is itself head down living. It's standing up and looking at the earth and it's focusing on the earth and the mindset on the flesh is death. And that is where the mindset will go. And that's where we began tonight, but now we end with the sparkling, shining, glorious New Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where Jesus wants you to be. In fact, that's where Jesus wants everybody to be. Someone you know right now who's unclean, Jesus wants them clean. Someone who's practicing abominations, Jesus wants to save them. Someone who's just an out-and-out liar, Jesus wants to give them the truth. The warning is here. And the beauty and the splendor of New Jerusalem is before us because that's where Jesus wants to take us. How do we get there? There's only one way, and it's trust. You just trust Him. Like Colossians 3.2 said, we read this earlier, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. The last verse I'll share with you tonight 
I think it's interesting. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 tells us that by faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as, a, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Abraham never bought land, never built a house, never built a mansion for himself. He could have. He was wealthy enough. Never did it. What did Abraham buy? He bought a cave in Machpelah where he could bury himself and his wife and kids. That's all he ever spent any of the money on. But he lived as a stranger and an alien. Why? Hebrews 11 verse 10. He was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And Abraham had it right. This is, by the way, why I believe in Isaiah 41 verse 8, God called Abraham his friend. Look it up. Abraham, my friend. Because God is all about fellowship and friendship and kinship and relationship. And that is what New Jerusalem is built for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful picture that You set before us. And here as we draw near to the end of this amazing revelation, we recognize again that this isn't just a picture of New Jerusalem. It's not even just a picture of the Lamb. But it reveals for us once again the heart of Jesus. The Groom who would establish and prepare and build all this just so we could be with You. Draw us close, Father. Give us hearts that just desire You. Give us, Lord, the constant call to look up, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look above, to set our minds on the things that are above and not below. To look forward to New Jerusalem itself coming down out of heaven. I mean, Father, it's just amazing to me. The rapture of the church seven-year honeymoon with you in the heavens? Can't even imagine. And then coming back, Lord, for a thousand years of ruling and reigning in a perfect world with you? And then after that, after that, you bring down New Jerusalem and we go home. I am so undeserving of that. It's not even funny. I don't even have to... It's silly, it's ridiculous to even describe how unworthy I am of that, Father. I'm so thankful it has nothing to do with my worth. Thankful, Lord Jesus, that You considered me valuable enough to die for me. And each of us that tonight, and Father, someone here tonight needs to know this, needs to know how valuable they are to You. And that their worth is not summed up in the things they do or accomplish. But our worth, all of us, is summed up in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I realize once again that you have gone to the utter extreme to prove to us that you are a God of love and relationship. So Lord, as we, as we believed in you, as we came to know You, as we began with You, help us just to walk with You in right relationship. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.
So get ready. How do I get ready? Just, just trust Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Be around Jesus' people. Talk about Jesus. Pray to Jesus. You'll be ready. And if any of what we've talked about tonight is overwhelming, it's, it's unbelievable, think of it this way. When a woman first finds out she's pregnant, she still has nine months to get ready. You don't go straight to the New Jerusalem. You know, we're going to be caught up. And we'll be with Jesus. And then we will rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. And then we'll go on to New... You know, it's step by step. God is so gracious in showing us the big picture and looking way, way out ahead. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Right now, today, tonight, just spend some time in intimacy with Jesus. Talk to Him before you go to sleep tonight. You know? I was telling Cheryl earlier... One of my favorite times in the day is when my head hits the pillow because I get two or three minutes before I zonk. And I fall asleep talking to Jesus. And it's I just love those times. So just do that. Be with Him. Trust Him. Your home is getting prepared.